Mark, the anointed servant, Jesus. Putting aside the fact that it's not certain whether the Gospel of Mark was written in AD 50 to 60 or AD 60 to 70, though most theologians prefer the latter, it is the shortest of the four and the earliest. It is said that as Matthew and Luke contain so much of Mark's Gospel, they must have used it as their source, along with a lost manuscript known as Q. However, what it does is connect the writing with a certain person and a specific place. The person is the Apostle Peter, and the place is Rome. And before we see the emergence of Jesus, both facts have a considerable bearing on this gospel. You see, Christian writers from the second century onwards are agreed that John Mark was with Peter in Rome during the last part of Peter's life. And what we have here is what Peter preached about Jesus. This is not Mark's take, but rather that of Peter. Again, it is not certain if it was written before Peter's death, about AD 65. However, what we have is not Mark's hearsay knowledge, but that of Peter's first-hand and first-rate apostolic testimony. So in Mark's Gospel, what we are really seeing is Jesus through the eyes of Simon Peter. But how do we know this for sure? In 1 Peter 5.13, we read, Your sister church in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now that may appear cryptic, but we must remember that the church at this time was under severe persecution by Nero. If you don't know the story, look it up, but beware it has an 18 rating. Babylon is a pseudonym for Rome, and Sister Church is the church in that city. So this indicates that both Peter and Mark were in Rome. Not long afterwards, Peter suffered martyrdom. And we can understand how Mark wanted to keep his friend's voice, now silenced, alive and living on. It has been said that Mark's gospel is virtually Peter's gospel. And you will note that Mark uses words such as they. In fact, there are many eyewitness recordings that Mark could not have been part of. Therefore, they were events written by Mark, having been shared by Peter. And yet, when we read of Peter, he is seen in derogatory terms, where his mistakes and blunders are not disguised or hidden. Strangely enough, where honourable parts are mentioned, they are passed over. And you could question, why is that? Here there only seems one explanation. It is Peter's own self-portrait of himself and recorded by Mark. But more than that, this gospel having been written in Rome, unites Peter with his target audience, Rome itself. In fact, the inhabitants of Rome, which is why Mark has used Latin words and Jewish customs. And there's more. 
Mark tells his story with drama and movement, making Jesus a man of action. Such a picture would appear, would appeal to the Roman readers. For the Romans themselves were also men of action. They loved glory and power and conquest. They were more interested in deeds than in words. Consequently, the Christ in Mark's gospel is one whom God anointed and appointed with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Words spoken by Peter in Acts 10, 38. Here, Mark is introducing us to Jesus as being the servant of the Lord. And it is because of Old Testament literature, and in particular, the prophet Isaiah. It is part of the messiahship of Jesus, but not like that of Matthew's gospel, which you will hear next week. There, the messiah is seen as the Davidic king, exalted to the right hand of God, and God's kingly ruler of men. But here in Mark, the Messiah is identified as the suffering servant, who is the redeemer of humankind by going to the cross. See Isaiah 53. Though before that happens, he must be commissioned and equipped for the task. And so we turn to the opening chapter. Let's hear the words of Mark. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In this opening statement, Mark makes it clear that he's, about, that he's not about to write about no ordinary story, but that of the Son of God, supernatural in origin and supernatural in power. And we read about his forerunner, John the Baptist, and then straight into Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan. And we can barely catch our breath. And then the Spirit drove him into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. The temptation marks the testing of the servant for his future ministry. It foretells us that throughout his life, Jesus is to be led by the Spirit opposed by Satan, attended by angels, and shown as the Lord of creation. In Mark 1, verse 14, Mark takes us to where the other synoptic gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, take three chapters to get us to. Mark's gospel is full of action and speed. He is impatient to get to the heart of the matter and show Jesus as the servant in action. And so we walk with Jesus along the seashore of the Sea of Galilee. There are two sets of brothers, fishermen at work, and we hear the words of action, come, follow me. The response is immediately one of Mark's favourite words. It is found 41 times in the Gospel and 10 times in chapter 1. Mark writes with urgency and action. Where Jesus goes, things happen. And you can sense his excitement and passion. In his opening chapter, 
Mark then tells us of the power that Jesus has over unclean spirits. He rebukes it and casts it out. This is Mark's first recorded miracle. And you can tell that Mark has a particular interest here as he recalls other instances of demonic healing. A little later, we hear of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law, but this time it was a fever. In fact, over a third of Mark's gospel is taken up with the mighty works of Jesus, whereas Matthew, it is about the teaching of Jesus. Mark records only four of the parables, but rather focuses on 18 miracles. You see, actions always attract the reader, especially Roman readers. So far, we have seen Jesus as having power over disease, demons, and death. But he is also the compassionate Christ. He has compassion, sympathy, and understanding. Without these qualities, he would lose appeal. You see, power without love is not attractive. 141 says, Jesus is moved with pity to those who come to him for cleansing. In 3 verse 5, he looks with anger on those who are tempted to prevent him from healing the withered hand. In 6.34, he has compassion on the crowds that encompass him, though he needs rest. In 10.13 to 16, he is indignant to his own disciples who attempt to prevent children from being brought to him. 10.21, he had real affection for the rich young ruler seeking eternal life. So we see the anointed servant in Mark's gospel with a spirit of power combined with a spirit of love. But he is also the suffering servant who came to serve and not to be served. It has been said that the first half is focused on how the Son of Man came to serve. But the second half is about the Son of Man who came to give his life as a ransom for many. The turning point comes in chapter 8. Jesus takes the disciples to the far north of the country to Caesarea Philippi, or Caesarea Philippi, where he is alone with them to prepare them for the final part of his ministry. But first he asks them questions. Who do men say that I am? The answer is some say John the Baptist or one of the prophets of old. Then he asks, who did you say that I am? And Peter blurts out, you are the Messiah. Yes, he was the Messiah, but not the one the Jews were expecting. You see, this Messiah would be rejected, killed, and three days later, rise again. Peter again blurts out, but this time his words are not accepted. His rebuke to Jesus turns into a rebuke from Jesus himself. Poor Peter. He got it right, then horribly wrong. Surely the Son of God must not suffer. 
Had he forgotten Isaiah 53? The picture of the suffering servant. Surely he was going to Jerusalem to be crowned, not crucified. From this point on, the cross is the dominant theme in Mark's gospel. In fact, one third of the gospel occupies what we know as from Palm Sunday to Easter Day. And you sense that what has happened before was an introduction as to how the death of Jesus came about. Once again, we are reminded of Isaiah 53, where Jesus becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross, for the sake of others. He was the sinless one who bore the sins of many. His death is not an example, but rather one of the works of atonement, taking upon himself the sins, our sins, and creating a new covenant, allowing us to be at one with God, opening the kingdom of heaven to all believers. It is in the scene in the upper room in Jerusalem where Jesus gathered with his disciples that we see this. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. He took the cup and said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Remember, it was the Passover time which had a sacrificial background. It was through the blood of the Passover lamb that redemption came to the enslaved Israelites in Egypt, Exodus 12. Later, under the shadow of Mount Sinai, Moses took the blood of sacrifice in solemn covenant between God and his redeemed people, Exodus 24. So against this background, we can understand the significance of the meal which Jesus presided over on that dark night before he was betrayed. The broken bread and poured wine emphasized the sacrifice he was about to take, therefore establishing a new covenant and a new relationship with God. A sacrifice which has led to not just Jews, but Gentiles, like you and me, being at one with God if we have given our lives to follow and serve Jesus. But Mark's gospel does not end with a crucified Christ, a dead Jesus. Had it done so, it would not have been a gospel in the sense of good news to the reader, and probably would not have been written you see, the record of the passion is itself evidence for the resurrection. As it would have not been included as part of the good news unless it was by those who believed in the risen Lord. In his closing comments, Mark records that the tomb is empty and a man in white announces that Jesus is not here for he has risen, therefore announces 
Jesus' prediction that he would rise on the third day. If you are following in your Bibles, you will see that most stop after verse 8 in chapter 16. Verses 9 to 20 were not found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts and clearly added later. The original either lost or destroyed. But while the gospel is incomplete, the mighty works of Christ are now crowned in the mightiest miracle of all, his resurrection. The tomb is empty. Christ is alive. Death is beaten, which surely is the good news for all humankind. Then, now, and in the future. Let's raise a hallelujah. Amen.